Hang on a second. I said I was ready, but actually I'm going to take my shirt off. That's the spirit. I'm actually shirtless as well. Don't worry. I actually have another shirt on underneath it. I don't. The first bit of news that I want to give you before uh, before we get into the uh, the meat of the show yes. is my wife made a life-changing discovery here in Stockholm. Oh? She found a shop that sells Yorkshire tea. Hey, there you go. This is a, a very, very important sort of um, key piece of the history of our relationship because it was actually you that introduced me to what is definitively the world's greatest tea. It is. I think I, think I can put that out there. I mean, it's a bold statement. And I know that uh, Yorkshire tea is up against some some fairly you know fairly high caliber competitors in, in saying that. But no, I think anybody who is uh, who has actually tried Yorkshire tea is probably nodding right now. I'm not sure it makes sense to talk about sort of tea as a, a single category with Yorkshire tea at the top. Yorkshire tea is, I think, the Yorkshire tea and Yorkshire gold, right? Right, are the best examples of the standard British cup of tea mm. like they are i think that the pinnacle of that variety of tea right obviously there's there's green tea there's sencha and there's lapsang sushong and there's russian caravan there's various other kinds of tea right and i'm not sure that i would lump them all together and say that yorkshire tea is the best because the times that i want a cup of yorkshire tea are very different from the times that i want like a, a good sencha from uji yeah. or something <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually wholly agree with you because it's uh, because uh, you know British style tea is not the only kind of tea that I drink, but it's far more far more dramatic to just say that it's a blanket statement that it's the the best tea in, in the entire universe. Yes, it is today anyway because we're really happy to find it. <laughs> so, uh, oh, well, that's good. That is good. You know, my mother sends me Yorkshire tea in the post. Really, and what she does, she gets a box of. Yorkshire gold from the supermarket, which comes in like a a box of I think it's eighty tea bags, right? And the box is cellophane wrapped, right, in a supermarket right. as is standard. And what she does is she just sticks a label on that with my address on it <laughs> 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 and prints postage and attaches that, and just sends it as is. So for the entire length of she she did this when I lived in Japan and now she does it now that I live in California. Right. And so this this box of tea is being sort of put in transit and put in, in an aeroplane and sent over the ocean. Right. And the entire length of this time, everyone can see exactly what it is they're handling. And then one day I open my post box and there is a pristine box of Yorkshire gold in its cellophane wrapping and and nothing else. See that that's pretty risky. I mean, uh, if I was a customs official, <laughs> and 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 a, like a, a plain box of uh, Yorkshire tea arrived, you would not be seeing that box. I, I would be I would be taking the afternoon <laughs> yes. off and I would be at home. You're saying you you would you should never get a job in customs. That's what you're saying. <laughs> that, that's basically what I'm saying. Anyway, for for um for those who are wondering, so indeed Yorkshire tea is actually a, a kind of um, traditional. I guess you'd call it British. It's actually a blend of Assam and some African teas, mm. and it's you would class it as you know a standard black British breakfast tea kind of. I don't I don't actually know the genre specific term for that style of tea. But it's remarkably different 
whilst still being tea. So if we compared it to something, you know, fairly um, standard that a lot of people will have tried before, something like, you know, Twinings, Darjeeling, or maybe um, uh, even like PG Tips or something by Lipton mm-hmm. or, you know. I mean, the Twinings English of... breakfast is a closer comparison than the Twinings Yeah, Darjeeling. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I suppose you're right, yeah. If we compared it to that, it, it has a more... The, the best word that I can think to describe it is woody. It has a sort of a woody, hmm. uh, very earthy kind of flavour. The the tea leaves themselves are they? It's ground up. It actually looks a lot like um, coffee grinds. Here, because I I'm a hundred percent a tea drinker and not a coffee drinker. Reason being is that I find that coffee consistently gives me a headache, hmm. whereas uh, tea consistently makes me feel kind of very happy. So. I take the latter. Anyway, <laughs> I prefer feeling happy <laughs> over headaches. Anyway, um, yeah, we we have loose leaf, so we we tend not to uh, go for tea bags. So with the loose leaf Yorkshire tea, you can actually see the tea grinds, and it's actually a very fine grind. Mm. It looks yeah, it looks a lot like coffee grounds, and um, yeah, it just I, I think the best way to describe it, it just has this sort of earthy. Uh, um, if regular tea is the sound of you hitting like a, a percussion mallet on a block of wood, then this is like the sound of a bongo. <laughs> trust trust you to come up with the audio metaphor for Yorkshire tea. <laughs> it's a bongo. <laughs> I have I have no idea what to make of that. I think it has a kind of spiciness to it that most teas don't. Mm. It's also quite famous for being stronger just plain stronger than a lot of other teas yeah in fact in yorkshire where they have a bit of a reputation for thriftiness Mm. it's it is quite common to use it to make multiple cups of tea from a single tea bag that's right that's sort of one of its benefits because it's so strong yeah it's interesting that it's not really strong as in like really bitter it's it is a very heavy dark kind of flavor Mm. and as you said yeah you Especially when you, if you have, um, so with the loose leaf tea, obviously I can make a big pot of it. And the longer that you leave it there steeping, it, it does tend to get quite bitter towards the end. Right, right. Um, but it is true that with the tea bags, uh, I remember that when we worked together in Japan, we, we had the tea bags. Where did we get them from? Was that from you, from your, from your uh, secret provider? It, it was in the end. At, at first, uh, Seijo Ishii, which is a shop that specializes in kind of foreign imported goods in Japan. Seijo Ishii used to stock Yorkshire tea, the standard red Yorkshire tea. All right. And I used to buy it from there. But then they stopped selling it. And so uh, that's when my mum started sending it to me. I see. I see. Yeah, so the um, uh, we had tea bags. And, uh, yeah, I used to remember, like, the first thing, I think uh, it was like the second or third day when I was working there. It's like, do we have anything to drink? And... I think it was like the you or one of our um, great colleagues and friend of the show. He said, "Oh no, you, this, that's not tea. This, you've got to try this. This is proper tea." <laughs> and it was like that. My life changed that day. <laughs> yeah. And the amazing thing was that, as you said, you could take one tea bag, which were characteristically round, and you could have about three cups of tea with it. They're not round. The Tetleys are round. The Yorkshire tea ones are square. That's, oh, really? Are you, yeah. are you sure? Yeah, I, I guess you would you would know. I still drink them from tea bags. You have the loose leaf, but no, I have I okay. have tea bags of those frequently. That's, so. that's strange. I thought oh, I must be thinking of PG tips. I guess PG tips are pyramid shaped. Oh, okay. So they're also got a very characteristic thing. Tetley is round. 
Okay. Tetley is quite famous for having round right. tea bags. This is teas are differentiated by the shapes of their tea bags. Like you don't right. have to see the packaging, you know. An Englishman can look at a tea bag and know exactly right. which brand of tea it is. So um, tell me, what is the difference between the Yorkshire Red and Yorkshire Gold? You know, I'm not sure. It's possible that I am just being conned. <laughs> but I, I think the gold tastes better. I just feel like it's got a, a bit of a deeper and a richer flavour to it. The interesting thing about Yorkshire tea is there are actually quite a few varieties of it. Mm. Because Yorkshire tea originates obviously in Yorkshire, which is towards the north of the country. And in, in the north of England, and even more so in Scotland, the water is is very good quality. But the further south you go in England you get what's called hard water, which I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it might mean it's got more limestone in it or something like that. It's right. The, the water is, is harder and not as good, I don't think. I think it is kind of a qualitative thing, but uh, Yorkshire tea actually produce a specific blend called Yorkshire tea for hard water, essentially. Mm, yeah. And so they actually, in, this, in the south of England, you can buy this specific blend that has been blended for the harder water that you get further south. And then you've got Yorkshire tea, and then you've got Yorkshire gold, and I think there's a couple of others as well. But I think Yorkshire gold is the best. But Yorkshire, Yorkshire's also very good. So I've just, um, I'm just uh, doing a quick DuckDuckGo search. There's a bit of a, a flashback to a previous episode where we talked about search engines. I've now actually switched all of my search engines over to DuckDuckGo. But Yorkshire tea, just looking on their website here, the half of the website is covered up by a this website uses cookies modal, which I shall now dismiss so that I can actually use said website. Uh, here we go. So, oh yeah, there's quite a lot. There's a blue one, which is decaf. Right. There's a green one, which is for hard water. And here's yeah. the gold one. And it says, Yorkshire Gold, this is our finest blend. We choose teas from our three favorite origins, Assam, Kenya, and Rwanda. And buy them from the top 10, 10 tea gardens in the world to make a rich, smooth, incredibly satisfi satisfying brew. So there's actually no, it is just a sort of a, a variant. There's it's no just a different different blend. And I'm not sure of the details of, of which teas they're using and whether some of their sources are more expensive than others. But mm. I know Yorkshire Red also uses teas from Rwanda and Kenya and Assam. So, right. the, you know, it's not. It's not that big a difference. And the taste is is pretty close. Ah, here we are. Sorry, Yorkshire tea. Yeah, you're right. It's a square tea bag. It's on their website. Right. I knew it was a sort of an unusual shape. It wasn't circular. It was square. Right. Anyway, so my wife has uh, successfully found a shop in uh, the, the middle of the city that sells Yorkshire tea loose leaf in 250 gram packs. And I'm very happy. Yes, that is definitely worthy of celebration. Just before we leave the, the topic of tea, do you like chai? I do, but I don't drink it all that often. Mm. Uh, I do like it, though. Yeah, there's actually a place that's quite famous for its chai up in San Francisco called Samovar. Right. And they're pretty good. I've had That was the most recent time I had chai was up there. Mm. Why'd you ask? Yeah, I really, really love chai. Um, since coming here in the supermarkets, you can buy, I guess it has some popularity in Sweden because in supermarkets you can buy different brands have their own sort of blends of chai that you can buy off the shelf here, mm. uh, which come in tea bags or also loose leaf. And um, 
Yeah, there's a certain there are three T's that I I uh, really really enjoy for certain kinds of moods. Uh, one, of course, is regular. Well, this Yorkshire tea. The second one is chai. I like that uh, that cinnamon spice. That mm. spicy feeling is really nice for certain moods. And the third one is called Lapsang Suchong. Ah, yes. Which is a smoke. Yeah, it's a smoke tea. And um, that's really uh, – there is a fourth one, which is pura tea, which is a, a Chinese tea. But um, that's more for to get eating together with a meal. These are just sort of having tea after a meal right. uh, or in between meals. And Lapsang Suchong has that sunny – sunny Sunday afternoon kind of feeling to it. Sort of nostalgic autumn afternoon feeling, if you know yeah. what I mean. Lapsang Sushong is definitely a, a favorite of mine. It's very good in the in the kind of cool weather, I think. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why I, I don't have it so much these days, but I, I used to drink it quite a lot. Mm. Uh, it's, uh, it's made with the tea is sort of laid on something or other, and they, they smoke pine leaves i think it is underneath right. it and they they yeah. kind of smoke the tea and that's what gives it that very smoky flavor yeah that's right yeah so anyway tea it's great now i'm really eager to ask listeners of our previous episode episode 28 we'll have heard that you uh did something fairly amazing in the two weeks between our episodes where you had a multilingual cross time zone remote D and D session yes. in two languages. Yes. It was it was the day after the last podcast went out. And it went pretty well. I think it was definitely I mentioned before, you know, during the podcast, I mentioned that we knew going in it was going to be difficult mm. and the logistics would be complicated. And that was borne out that was definitely the case. Mm. First, we spent like an hour setting up because we had all sorts of problems with the audio. And I had originally, we were planning for my wife and I, who were both playing, we're going to be here together in the same room right. using the same microphone. That makes sense. And then Tema and his wife were going to do the same where they were. And then Alex was going to be on his own. Right. But for a variety of reasons, at the last minute, I thought it would be a better idea to have my wife and I in separate rooms. Okay. And she would have her own computer, which would be my laptop, and, you know, use her own headphones and microphone. And that way, A, I would get a different audio stream for her, which would be useful right. if I wanted to do anything with this audio down the line. And B, we were using a tool called Roll20 in order to help with all this. And Roll20... If you're logged into it with your character, it has a lot of useful features. Like you can display your character sheet and it's got all your stats. And if the DM says, make a perception check, for example, you can just click the perception skill and it will figure out what the correct dice roll is and roll it for you and apply all the modifiers and things like that. So you don't have to sort of look at the sheet and roll the dice and then add up all the numbers and all that. It does all that for you, right? Amazing. These uh, these modern times that we live in. Right. It, but it's, it's kind of a useful thing. And also the DM can sort of give items or secret messages or whatever to individual players. But it relies on each player being logged in with their own device. So it wouldn't really work if we were both looking at the same screen. As well as that, I also had sort of the adventure that I'd written was on the screen mm. and it was in English. So I wasn't too, too worried about her looking at the screen and sort of 
the secrets and the next thing being given away or whatever. But still, I just thought it would make it easier if we if we were separate. So we did that. But I had set her up with a pair of Bluetooth headphones mm. and I had all sorts of problems connecting those. And then I, when I finally did connect them, they lasted for like an hour and a half and then the batteries ran out and I had to sort of run through and fix them up. And then, and then it turned out that although they had been working and we had all been hearing what she was saying, the, I was using Audacity to record the audio mm. and it had just failed to record. Like for whatever reason, it wasn't connected properly with these Bluetooth headphones. And the audio was just a, a sequence of like clicks. You couldn't make out anything at all. Mm. So that was a bit of a disaster. Right. And then it took like an hour to get everyone, mostly our setup here, but, you know, everyone all set up and ready to play. So there was all that. And then once we had started to play, then we had to deal, then the technical difficulties were basically sorted, but we had to deal with the, with the language problems, which are always right. going to be the more difficult problem. Right. And I think I described last episode the way that I had intended for this to work which is that I would speak in English. Tema would type out translations of what I was saying in the chat and anybody could speak whatever language they wanted to. Mm. And when they were talking amongst themselves, they could also translate amongst themselves. Mm. That was the, the basic gist of, of the way that I, that I decided to do it. Right. It turns out that I was a little bit naive in imagining how smoothly this would work. Mm. Tema's English is much better than my Japanese. That's part of the reason I thought this would be a good idea mm -hmm. because I thought I could write nice descriptive English passages and, you know, read them out or I could improvise in English and those passages would get translated into nice descriptive Japanese passages that were better than, than I could write. Mm. And that may be true, but it still takes time to do that, even if you're a native speaker. I mean, even if you were just typing out what I was writing in English, it would take time. It was very hard to type, you know, unless you're a professional stenographer. Mm. It's very difficult to type and keep up with someone, right? Yeah. So now imagine doing that and also trying to translate for them at the same time. And between mm. English and Japanese, which are like fundamentally the sentences are all in a different order. So you've got to wait till the end of the sentence before you can really start writing the, right, right. the Japanese version and, and those sorts of issues. So... The end result was that there was a lot of pausing and waiting for the translations to finish. Oh, okay. And worse than that, Tema was basically full-time translating. Like, he had no real time to jump in and make comments himself or to really involve himself in playing the game, mm. which was very un unfortunate for him, obviously. I mean, he didn't complain or anything, and he did a sterling job. But his DM, like... I think it's it's kind of my responsibility to try and make sure that everyone has fun. Mm. And it was a good first try, but I think next time there are a number of things I would like to do to improve it because I, I do feel like at times not everyone was having fun. Like Temo was just furiously translating and not really getting to play. The two Japanese people were kind of waiting for these translations to come through. Mm. And then the, the one English player was sort of felt like this awkward silence and so he would start doing all sorts of role playing to fill the silence oh. which meant that Tema had to do more translating <laughs> and that I ended up kind of devoting all my sort of attention to him and not giving enough time to the Japanese players right so 
you know, perhaps these issues were predictable, uh, but nevertheless, they happened. I think it was a good experiment to try doing it this way. This is like the one extreme of how can I speak the least Japanese and still manage to try and 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 play a game. Right. I think for the next game, uh, the number one thing, well, there's there's two main things I would change and I'm planning on changing. Number one is that I had prepared a number of pieces of text to read out verbatim during the game. Mm. There would be like, when you encounter a new area, it would be the kind of introductory explanation or description of that area. Or it might be some of the dialogue that some of the NPCs, the non-player characters would say to you. Mm. Given that I've already written all that, and we didn't get anywhere near the end of the adventure that I'd written this time. We got maybe a third of the way through, if that. So I've already done enough of the preparation in English for the next couple of sessions, if we continue doing this. Hmm. So between now and the next time we play, I think it would be very worthwhile for me to go through all these verbatim pieces and just translate them into Japanese myself. Hmm. And then when it comes to the time to read them out... I'll be able to just copy and paste the Japanese version I've written into the chat log and then read the English version in real time. And that way, the Japanese people, it'll be like reading subtitles, right? They'll be reading the Japanese version that I've pasted in at the same time as I'm speaking it in English. Wouldn't So hopefully it'll reduce the awkward silence. Wouldn't it be a little... Seeing as, as there are two of you who are fully bilingual... Mm. wouldn't it be wouldn't it be easier it may be slower and it may not allow for some of the dramatic impact that you would need but wouldn't it be simpler if you just spoke two languages so everything that happens you say in english first and then you you follow it with japanese yes. and you need to sort of break you you need to sort of break up what you're saying into shorter phrases obviously yeah but like wouldn't that just be easier that is everyone? number two right yeah that is that is thing number two so for these sort of dramatic set pieces that I've written verbatim text to read out. Mm. I think doing it with Japanese written text that people can read makes sense because then I can put effort into like the acting and I can I can try and read it in the way that I had imagined it when I was writing it. Mm. And as with watching a film with subtitles, you can get a sense of the emotion even if you don't understand the language, right. right? The subtitles give you the meaning and then the performance gives you the emotion. Right. So I think it's worth having that for that situation. Oh, yeah. The thing though there is that subtitles work because they are timed with the speech in the other language. But in this case, if you have a big chunk of text, like a paragraph, mm. you have no idea when the Japanese reader is going to be finished reading that and whether that's going to be before or after your English section is finished. My suspicion is that they will be able to read faster than I can speak. Mm. But I don't think that really matters. Okay. Like, I think it's fine for them to scan through and get the gist of the meaning mm. and then listen, even if they sort of... They might react a bit earlier than Alex, who is the English-speaking player. Mm. You know, there might there might be a little bit of difference there, but I don't think it would be enough to be problematic. And these passages are paragraphs, but they're not very long paragraphs. Sure. So, so I, don't, I don't think that will be an issue. Mm. But the majority of the speaking that you do as DM is not prepared speeches. Mm. It is 
asking players what they're going to do, describing how that worked out mm. and what the response to that was, improvising the speech of various NPCs, uh, all those sorts of things. Right. And for those things, it's impossible to prepare right. a Japanese version ahead of time. And I think our experience playing the last game showed that it's not really that useful to have Tema having to translate 100% everything all the time. Mm. So I think I do need to make much more of an effort then to say it in both languages. Right. Or to, or if I'm interacting like with one person specifically, like if I'm interacting with, with Alex, then I can speak in English for a while and then summarize the conversation afterwards or vice versa. If I'm speaking to a Japanese person, I can sort of converse with them for a little bit in Japanese and then summarize what happened mm. as necessary. Mm. That's going to take a little bit of sort of practice and getting used to. And I did start to do it towards the end of the session because I could mm. start to see that it was becoming a problem. Uh, but I definitely need to do more of that if this is going to be a, at all fun for everyone involved. So what was it fun? Well, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult to say. It was, de it was very rough around the edges. Right. And I, I am legitimately a little bit worried that, especially for one of the players who was one of the Japanese players, had never played before. Oh, okay, right. And I'm a little bit worried that it would have put them off because right. it probably didn't seem that fun mm. to her so you know mm. i think you know they all said it was fun but they would say that because i was asking so <laughs> um right. I, I i hope that it can be you know that we can turn it into a success and i think i think it was good enough i hope that it was good enough that everyone is up for keeping going and at least trying to get to this adventure and see whether we've managed to iron out all these problems by then. Mm. Well, best of luck. I hope it works out. From when you described the process as you were hoping to run it last time, I was thinking, yeah, that that's uh, it's going to be amazing uh, to see how it goes. However, it, it seems to be that seeing as you and Tema are bilingual anyway, mm. you know, I think uh, it just seems like a simpler solution to to be basically DMing in shorter sentences and, and basically cutting between both languages as fast as you can. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, on on reflection and with experience, yeah, moving more in that direction will help. Yeah, I mean, very. Uh, it was a very ambitious endeavor and it was great to hear that uh, that you tried it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it was worth trying and, and I, I hope that we'll be able to try it a bit more and figure it all out. So um, while we're on the topic of, uh, of languages... Mm. I had a uh, bit of an unfortunate uh, thing. Two unfortunate things happened uh, last week. Number one, my wife accidentally left her bag, which contained her wallet, on the bus. Oh, dear. And number two, my bike was stolen from out the front of our house. Mm -hmm. So this resulted in quite a lot of calling around to various call centers uh, here in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So obviously things like cancelling a credit card and... Uh, I called the police to file a, a report about my... I mean, I have no hope of getting my bike back, but, you know, just for the record, I thought it'd be a good idea to uh, report it to the police anyway. Sure. And, and various sort of bits and pieces that needed to be done, obviously calling the bus company to, to see if they could locate it and things like that. All of this was done through call centres. So a Swedish call centre 
is just basically what you would expect. You know, you start off with a um, an automatic kind of uh, push button guidance system that gives you options, and then you choose the option you want. You press the number, and then you wait in a queue, mm. uh, and it will tell you uh, the the automated ones. Uh, for example, the police department uh, is is very good. It actually tells you you are number three in line, or actually. When I called, it was kind of a bad time to call because it was like Friday afternoon. And it was it started off as you are number twenty seven in line. Oh dear! <laughs> so I kind of left my phone plugged in um, on uh, speakerphone for about uh, an hour and a half, and then uh, when it came to like you are number one in line, I plugged in my headphones mm. uh, to my phone, and then <laughs> as soon as the as soon as the the police officer connected, they said hello, 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 <laughs> and then hung up because. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, uh, my my maybe I didn't plug it in properly, or it was a bad connection. But the oh microphone, so I did, so I had to call again. But fortunately, by that stage, it was like Friday evening, and so I was <laughs> I was only like number fifteen in line, so I wasn't so bad. <laughs> anyway, when you finally connect to somebody, you know it's pretty much uh, just what you would expect from a call center in the West. It's a person saying, you know, can I help you? Oh, okay, I understand. Well, in that case, we need to do this. Can you tell me that? Can you mm. tell me this? Okay, we're going to do this. Mm. So if you do that, thank you very much. Is there anything else you need me to help you with? Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. So it was a stark culture shock to have to call a few days later a Japanese call center mm. with regard to some insurance things. In Japan, often, with especially with regard to insurance it has to be the actual the you you can't call in proxy you actually have to be right. the person who holds the policy yeah. to be talking on the phone yeah. and they'll ask you some questions about your birth date and things like that to confirm that it's actually you and it's all just basically a way to be 100% certain that they are talking to the person who has the authority over you know the issue that you're talking about right so now i'm sure you've had the experience of calling a japanese call center before but after going through several Swedish call centers and then calling a Japanese call center, mm. I'd gotten very much gotten used to what they are like when I used to live in Japan. But after being mm. away from Japan, doing this and then calling one again, mm -hmm. it was this huge, huge contrasting difference. So basically, Japanese call centers take a very different approach to being helpful. Mm. <laughs> and the way that they be helpful is... It is essentially like you are talking to a robot, right? Because it's very, it's it's peculiar because it starts off with them. Firstly, you rarely ever have to wait. Mm. Uh, they, you know, they, they, in their minds, their way of providing good service is number one: don't keep the person waiting. So very quickly, right. you usually connect to somebody. That's true. They speak in ultra polite Japanese, yes. which can feel very, very impersonal and is very, very long-winded. Mm. <laughs> so everything that they say takes basically three or four times longer to say than is actually necessary. If you just stripped it down to the core things that they want to ask you, right. for example, right. you know, what is your birth date? Right. It could be that simple, but it stretches out into this long, long, you know, uh, right. sort Would of. Would you do um, me the honor of telling me about the date of your birth, sort of thing? If you may, yes, exactly. If 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 I may uh, request that you excuse my rudeness with this candid question, but you know, would I would I would it be possible for me to 
humbly request that you inform me of your birth date. <laughs> it's kind of like that. So you know right. what you know what it is that you have to say, right? And you're just waiting for them to get the, to the end of the question so that you can say it, right? And that's not for just one thing. That's for everything that they say. And on top of that, as part of I guess the the professional etiquette of being a call center um, and providing good call center service. They want to make sure that you understand they know exactly what you're talking about. Right. That means that everything that you say, they will repeat back to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely everything. But they don't just repeat back to you, uh, you know, just sort of like a like a a, um, a recording. They actually repeat it back to you, but rephrased in this incredibly polite language that, that takes yeah. extra long. Well, I long. do think that is that is quite good. That is a good way of confirming that they have actually understood the thing you're saying. It, that's true. It is good. Uh, however, from the, I guess, the consumer, user, interviewee point of view, mm. firstly, you know what it is that you have to say and it takes them this whole long time for them to get to the end. So you're sort of waiting there for them for them to finish saying, can I ask your birth date? Right. You say it. <laughs> you say it. And then you have to wait for this whole long period why they repeat back to you in this incredibly polite language that right. is, is it correct that this is your birth date? Right. So then you say yes. And then you go on to the next question that, again, you can predict. So essentially what it means is, you know, out of like a, a three-minute call, you will speak for a, a total of about 11 seconds <laughs> or 12 <laughs> seconds. And the rest of them is just sort of sitting there. You know what it is that they're going to say, but you're just sort of waiting for them to finish saying it. Right. And it was such a stark contrast because it doesn't feel like a person. Yes, you know, it, it is, it's highly professional, highly accurate, highly concerned with getting the details correct, which is arguably extremely important, as you pointed out. Mm. However, you, you do sort of wonder to yourself, I, I wonder if these people who design this kind of interaction, I wonder what they think when they call other companies call centers and they are sitting there waiting for the other person on the other end to finish their question or waiting for them to finish their confirmation. Right. I wonder if they're thinking, wow, this is really professional and this is really good service. <laughs> it's just a very different idea of what good service should mean because – the the Swedish call centers, you know, I usually start off the first first thing that I'll usually say is, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, could I get some help in English, please? Right. And, you know, and, and immediately the person on the other end will say, oh, sure, I'll try my best. Right. Uh, and immediately with that, it just sounds like a person. And, you know. Right, right. Um, like when I was talking to the, the police officer for my, my report, I was asking about um, – you know, if we if we find my bicycle, do I need to do anything? And they said, "Oh, yeah. You know, if you need to that, you need to call back to uh, cancel the 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 file. Here's your file number. Da 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 da. Okay, did you catch that? Oh, by the way, uh, you might want to call like you know ten or eleven o'clock at night because we're still here. Uh, people on the night shift, and there's you know you don't have to wait so long. So that might right. be helpful for you to know. Right, right. And it's kind of like, oh, thanks, thanks very much. That's great. Yeah, and it's very. It's sort of removed from – it's just a very human thing and it's sort of removed from this this process that we are going through that is the, the customer call. It's sort of removed from that and it just sounds like a person you're giving – a person giving you some help. Right, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I Similarly, I've made some, some of these sorts of calls here in America as well. Mm. In fact, I've had to make a lot of them because a surprising number of things require – 
telephone communication here for reasons I don't totally understand. What are they like? And, well, one difference recently, which a lot of places seem to be implementing, is you mentioned waiting on the phone for an hour and a half for your turn in the queue. Mm. It is quite common now for when you first connect, it will say, like you, you are number 27 in the queue. Then it will say, if you like you can get us to call you back on this number that you've called on mm. when it's your turn. Oh, that's cool. If you don't do that, we estimate that the queue will be an hour and a half or whatever. Oh, that's great. If you use this service, you will not lose your place in the queue. Mm. They always specify that. Mm. And it makes sense if you think about it. It's like, why force you to sit there with the phone connected the whole mm. time, waiting, when... They know you called. They know the order in which you called. And it's very easy for them to set up an automated ringback thing. So that's become quite a common thing here in, in the US. And I think mm. that, is, that is great. Is it uh, like talking to a person? Then you actually get connected. <laughs> right. Um, so that, that's a very good thing. And then you get the call back and you get connected. And sort of the phone rings, you pick it up, and then it starts ringing, which is a bit weird, but that's because it was the callback and then you've picked it up and then oh, I see. now it's phoning them because they're right. going to be ready. I see. Uh, but they generally pick up pretty quickly. And then it is like a person, sometimes a little bit too much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, it really depends on who you get. I think that is that is a big difference between here and Japan is... It's not so much a question of the quality as the right. variance, right? Right, I see. Like, on average, I'm not sure that I would say that uh, American uh, call centers are better or worse, per se, than, than Japan. But you can have some really good ones that are just really friendly, but don't talk too much and are keen to get to the bottom of your issue and will go out of their way to sort of understand the issue and then like you said with the, the police officer, like not only resolve your immediate problem, but also give you advice that's related to that, right? That you might not have thought to ask yourself. Mm. Um, and that's great. You get other people who are very difficult to understand. There's obviously a very wide range of accents in America. And I'm oh, okay. not, you know, I'm foreign to America. So I'm more familiar with some accents than others. And I do find some American accents quite difficult to understand and there are also a lot of uh, people who aren't native english speakers also work in call centers as mm. as you know it's quite a common job for relatively recent immigrants to america so you know th so you have to work a bit harder to understand the accents here whereas in japan i feel like probably because there just aren't that many foreign people who speak Japanese and because there's much more of a sense that whatever your native Japanese accent, if you're working in a call center, you should be speaking in Shojungo, the, the kind of standard Japanese accent. Mm. So I think there's, there's a little less of a sense of that in Japan. Mm. And then secondary to the accent, you know, there are some people who obviously really care and there are other people who very obviously don't. <laughs> I see. <laughs> And that sometimes you can get to the end of one of these calls and you've, you don't really feel like your problem was understood. And therefore, the advice you've been given in response, you're not really sure whether it makes sense or it applies to you because you're not sure that 
that you were able to communicate I see. the issue that you were having. Yeah. Right. So so you do get this problem with with variants. Mm. So that that never happens in Japan because people are you know the call center people who uh, they are so so thoroughly trained mm. that uh, everything is so based on protocol and clearly you know somebody has a, f- a binder in front of them with the set phrases that they need right. to say for every everything. Right. The flip side to that is that if there's any unforeseen circumstance, yeah, they're not very good at adapting to it. And right? you can definitely hear that. You know, when it's something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, you can definitely hear that this person doesn't really know what to say right now. Right. Um, but it, I think the there was a strange feeling that I had after, you know, I got used to it a lot when I was in Japan. I never really thought too much about it. However, having done it with this contrast in mind and also after not having done it for a while, there was a strange feeling that I had after the call finished where it almost felt like I, I felt like I was a bit um, – I, I, I can't place the right feeling, like the word, right word for the emotion, but it, it seemed like this whole call was not about me and my problem. It was about their process and their protocol. Right. It sort of feels like – you know, because it's like this person has a 10-step right. uh, process on the page. Step number three is listen to caller. Step number seven is listen to caller. Right. And I'm kind of being strung along with that process. And I think it's because there's so much waiting for your turn to say something right. when you know what it is that they want you to say. I think, that, yes, there's that. And also, I do think in, in a number of regards, including call centers, but also a few other... Uh, where you know things that i've noticed working in a japanese company and just within japanese society is that a lot of situations which i think here perhaps you you would expect somebody whose whose job it is to help you is going to be listening to your problem and trying to work out how to solve that problem mm. right whereas in japan I feel like a lot of the time the the same role of person, the approach they take and almost the job they have to do is slightly different. Mm. It's more like they should have an encyclopedic knowledge of the process and all the rules that relate to this problem. Mm. And then they can listen to this problem and they can understand how this problem fits into this set of rules that exists. Mm. And then the very talented ones can explain to you the rules such that you can adjust your problem or your situation so that you can fit within those rules. You know what I mean? It's like a subtle distinction. It's not about adjusting the, the you know, your side to, to resolve your problem. It's more like, here, here is what you need to do mm. in order to make this issue fit in with the known parameters. See, and it's yeah. not, I'm not saying it's better or worse. Like, that is not a criticism. Mm. I actually quite like that because you also, if you so choose, can learn and understand those rules and change the way you behave and change the kind of the, the way you approach problems mm. so that they will fit in well with the rules. And if you, if you develop the skill to do that yourself then things can go extremely smoothly for you right whereas here 
where it feels a bit more malleable and it's like this person is going to help me with my problem and I'm going to rely on them to do that mm. it's it's it can be harder to understand what the rules in place are and so you never get that sense of of smoothness and really be a, being able to fit in with the grind and and run in that direction right 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 so that I'm not saying one thing is better than the other but there is I do feel like there's more of an onus on you as the person with the problem in Japan to be to have the rules explained to you and then to ch- change what you need to change to fit in with those rules mm. that um that's a really good point and i think that is emphasized by the strict protocol that you feel as you're going through these call center processes mm. where it kind of it, it almost like I, I said just a moment ago it feels like you're being strung along by this process right it, it almost feels the, the word that i was going to use but not because it didn't quite fit the feeling was belittling Mm. it's not really belittling that you feel like they're not being respectful to you, but it actually hearing your explanation just now has made me understand why belittling is a good word for the feeling because it feels like you're standing in front of this gigantic mammoth kind of body of system and protocol and complexity. And you have, you're completely powerless to get any flexibility out of it whatsoever. Right. And, and basically, you know, here you are, that they're spending, you know, this this huge long 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 sentence to ask you your birth date, and you say it, and then this another huge long sentence to confirm that that is your birth date, and then you say yes, and then you start with the next question where you know what it is that they're going to ask. They want to ask your full name, so now it's this massive long question, and you're just sort of drumming your fingers on the table, waiting for them to finish so that you can say your full name, and then they confirm it, and then you say yes, and it's <laughs> it's sort of it it's it feels like this kind of um just big intimidating kind of uh yeah just like this this protocol this massive of system and protocol that that as you say it it feels like you know here is a square hole please plug your square piece into it right <laughs> rather than hello there what is the shape of your piece right you know <laughs> right 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 <laughs> yeah so yeah that's uh, it, it was a, a very, very – it's funny because when we finished the call, I, uh, I hung up and I went out to my wife and I said, you know, that was like really exhausting because I hardly said anything. But I was just sort of sitting there listening to this poor lady on the other end somewhere in Japan in a call center office mm. reeling off these lines out of a binder. Mm. <laughs> and it could – the whole thing could have been done in just like a few minutes but it had to take five or six minutes mm. because – of all the language that she had to use. Mm. And my wife kind of looked at me with this puzzled look saying, well, what's wrong with that? That's really professional, isn't it? Right. <laughs> I mean, no, but I, I kind of know what she means because after living in Japan for a little while, I can't remember whether it was a call center or a face-to-face interaction, but there was some interaction that I had in the UK. It was either phoning the UK to sort something out or, or some sort of meeting and I actually found that exhausting mm. because I had to listen to the other person and respond quickly. <laughs> like I'd kind of got used to going on autopilot with these things in right. Japan right. and kind of doing something else at the same time. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so, you know, yeah, I can kind of see that side of the story as well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how living in a country uh, and being surrounded by a certain way of doing things really uh, can change your expectations and I guess what triggers certain emotions you know it, it changes and it's not it's not a, it's not about upbringing or anything like that it's just that you know the 
you get used to something and when you're shifted out of that, it suddenly becomes a, a stark contrast. And that's, I guess, one of the um, the wonderful, wonderful benefits of the privilege of living in a foreign country, isn't it? Yeah, because, yeah definitely. You know, you, you really sort of, uh, it, it's not normal anymore. You realize that normal is something that's very flexible and, you know, just depends on where you are. And it's not sort of, you know, if you've only known one country and one way of doing things, that's normal and anything else is abnormal. But when you leave and you realize that there are other places that do things in a different way and they think that is normal, for example, my wife looking at me saying, well, you know, what's wrong with that? It seems very professional. Mm. Mind you, actually, my wife is having her own interesting experience here living in Sweden with a lot of expectations and, and sort of norms that she had grown up with uh, in Japan being challenged right now as well. But this is all just part of the, you know, the great, wonderful privilege that it is to live in a foreign country. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely be interested to hear from anybody who's from another country than Japan or the US or or the UK or, you know, one of these English-speaking countries, you know, maybe from, from some of the European countries. Uh, because there is, I'm sure there's a, a wide range of of styles to these call centers there as well you know I, I have a sort of impression in my head of what it might be like in in france i imagine it's it's very bureaucratic and in spain i imagine these calls are quite long but <laughs> it's not so so informed by uh, experience so if anybody has any call center stories to shove in the reddit i would be very interested to read them yes indeed so, uh, prior to the show tonight, I was actually uh, watching on YouTube a very... Um, I was watching a, pro a promotional video uh, from a, a guitar manufacturer called Ernie Ball. Mm. Uh, and they manufacture the uh, Music Man line of uh, basses and guitars. And I own a Music Man Stingray, which is uh, one of their... Also, very popular string manufacturer. I, I used to get all my guitar strings from Ernie Ball. Yes, indeed. So Ernie Ball actually produced a custom guitar uh, for an artist called Saint Vincent. Mm. And I don't know if you've... Have you heard Saint Vincent? Um, not sure. Name rings a bell. But... Okay, yeah. Saint Vincent is an American... Uh, it's, it's the artist name of an American female guitarist, songwriter, and vocalist called Annie Clark. Mm. And uh, she is... I guess you would class it as art rock. Right. Is it a very slightly avant-garde progressive alternative rock i suppose you would call it mm. and um saint vincent or annie clark has uh, is the recipient of a grammy actually the grammy for best album in an alternative rock i think i think it was last year perhaps mm. uh, and she was actually the first female recipient of that award in 20 years which is fantastic mm. so uh the video was from um on youtube and it was from ernie ball and it was obviously talking about um the custom guitar that Ernie Ball had made for the, for her. And um, she was talking a little bit about, uh, you know, her attitude towards stage performance. And she had a line at the end of the video that I thought was extremely thought-provoking, and I'm interested to hear your take on it. Mm. So she was talking about how it is very important when you're a performer of this kind of music to find a balance and straddle a line between having enough ego to be confident in your intuition mm. and your kind of gut feeling about what is artistically correct, mm. but not having so much ego 
that you have basically become consumed by this artificial image that you've created for yourself for right. your art. Right, yeah. And so in in her um so with her music, you know, it is a very I guess kind of it's this kind of like futuristic rock, I suppose you would call it. So a lot of her stage performance has um sort of various elements of interesting sort of uh, futurism about it. Mm. And you know, she's got the costumes and she's got the lyrics and the music is great and of course there's the lighting and uh uh, just the whole the whole show is this amazing spectacle. And um, the line that she said at the end of the video, she said that artists do their best work when you're in that sweet spot in between having enough ego but not having too much of it. Mm. And the line that she said at the end to summarize that was, sell your own myth but never buy it. Right. Yeah. And I thought, firstly, when I heard that, I thought, wow, that's really, well, what a great line. So I actually... Did a, uh, did a duck, duck, go search for it, <laughs> thinking that perhaps it was a quote from somebody else, but it wasn't. It's was actually something that she said. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a quote of Annie Clark, St. Vincent. Uh, Sell your own myth, but never buy it. So basically, as a, a performer of this kind of, of uh, avant-garde art, you need to create this image and this myth, and you need to sell that, but not buying it. I guess, can be interpreted as meaning don't get consumed by it and don't start to believe that that is you. Right. It's not you. It's you need to be objective about the fact that it is a performance that you're putting on for, you know, for this artistic purpose. So, yeah, I was interested when I heard that. I thought, that's really interesting. This was just before we started our recording tonight. So I was interested to bring that to this episode to get your uh, your opinion on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's It's... Interesting. Actually, funny enough, it reminds me, I was reading an, an interview with Terry Gilliam the other day, mm. who obviously of, of Monty Python fame. Yeah. And he's recently released, is he released or about to release a new film based on Don Quixote? Right. I think it's called The, the Death of Don Quixote or something like that. And as part of my effort with Spanish this year, I was reading El País and they had an interview with him. So uh, the interview's in Spanish, so I can't read quotes from it. But mm. <laughs> but again, he, he was saying something a little bit similar, like they were asking about, you know, what is the key to creativity? And he said also, you know, there, there is a sense of arrogance to it as well. Like you said, you've got to believe in your own, the, the thing that you're pushing, right? Mm. And, you know, he said he he fought for his, projects in hollywood even when there were problems and errors because he, he believed that his errors were more interesting than the errors than studio executives mm. <laughs> so, right but yeah yeah it's it's definitely true i think that's a it's a very difficult balance to strike because clearly a lot of people go too far in the selling your own myth side of it right right there are there are definitely people who who really push their own image and you definitely get the impression that that they believe their own story. Mm. And then you also get the other extreme, which I find at least as frustrating, which is when people don't believe in their own talent and their own worth and their own sort of image, right? Mm. And they do something very impressive but then they refuse to market it or to take advantage of it because they want to be 
humble or they don't want to, you know, make too much of it. And I think that that's also a mistake if you want to be, especially if you're a performer. But in in many walks of life, I think that's a mistake to to understate your own abilities and achievements too much. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think um, performance is such a, a weird thing. You know, it's such a, especially performance where a large component of it is image. And it's something that you create for the entertainment of people. Mm. And like psychologically, you need to have the right attitude in order to keep yourself mentally healthy as you're doing that. I mean, it's it's one thing to sort of watch, you know, go to a live show and you see, you know, somebody do uh, a live act, kind of like, you know, if you're an actor or like a stage actor or something. And it's basically, you know, putting on a persona, presenting an image. Mm. But in the case of an actor, you know, it's not that common to have an actor who acts the same character for their entire artistic career. Right. I mean, there, there are obviously there are there are several examples of that, but it's it's <laughs> you know it's fairly fairly uncommon. So as an actor, you know you need to be versatile and you need to shift and move on. Mm. And you know, in the case of like a movie star, it's even more the case that you know basically you're only that actor for the duration of the movie, perhaps. You know, if the movie goes well, then maybe there may be follow-ups or sequels or several parts to it, in which case you do it a few more times. But, mm. you know, basically it is a, it's a sort of a one-off thing, relatively speaking. Whereas when you have a musician who is using their image to go along with um, the sort of the, the grander artistic objective to combine with their music, mm. it's something that can go on for a lot longer and it is – Day in, day out, you know, it is, you know, if you imagine going to see a performance, when somebody's on tour, that person is doing that several nights every week, if not every night, every, you know, uh, every week for several months Mm. for loads of different groups of people in different locations every night. Right. And, you know, you have to be, uh, and and then, of course, what happens after that is that you get all of these people who come to watch you perform uh, you can tell that they begin to adore the image that you've created mm. and they sort of idolize, uh, in the truest sense of the term, idolize. They idolize this image that you've created for them that's not actually you. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and I can certainly see how if you're not careful in that kind of situation, you will basically start to believe that you are this image. That you, you know, you lose yourself to this image that you've created because. You've got thousands and thousands of people paying money to come and enthusiastically enjoy you being somebody else. Mm. So if you're doing that every single night for several months on a tour in different countries or cities or whatever, you know, you, you can see how that's going to get to you. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, that there are, as you said, there are examples of, of, of the extreme the other way, but there are the, the examples of the extreme, the unhealthy extreme of this uh, where you basically lose to yourself to your own image, mm. um, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of those too, and it, it's just such a, you know, I, I think in this this modern era of fame and popularity and and idols and idolization, it's such a weird weird phenomenon. Well, it's interesting because that phenomenon is now, I think, much much easier for that to to take hold in people who aren't performers, but are just normal people. Mm. For example, of all the social networks that is popular with young people, mm. <laughs> younger than us, mm-hmm. 
uh, people in their teens and perhaps their early 20s, it's not so much Twitter and Facebook as Instagram and Snapchat. Right. Which are very visual media. Right. And it is... I, I, I'm risking becoming an old person talking about things he does not understand because I have <laughs> a total of one picture on my Instagram account, which I uploaded some five or seven years ago, and I don't even remember taking, of a locker, <laughs> which is like, it's so boring. And I just get likes from random spam accounts every now and then trying to get me to follow them. And that's, that's, my, that's the extent of my use of Instagram. Right. But... I gather that uh, it is obviously extremely popular with, with young people and you see people around, right, setting up photos. We went to a cafe in San Francisco a little while back yeah. and there was this couple and these two people had bought a, a cup of coffee, a big cup of fancy coffee in a sort of deep bowl-like cup. Right. And then a cup of tea which was in, it was just in a paper takeaway cup, right? right? There was no, it was nothing fancy, it was just tea, right? It was not Yorkshire tea. Uh, it was certainly not Yorkshire tea. <laughs> and they took it in turns. They were sitting, like first the, the girl would, was sitting with this coffee and her boyfriend was then taking photos of her from lots of different angles, drinking this coffee in this quite famous cafe. Mm. And then they swapped and he was sitting in front of the coffee, right. and she was taking photos. Oh, won't and be. I'm not even sure if I, either of them liked coffee. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not sure whose the tea was, yeah. but like the the coffee was definitely there for the photos. Right, right, right. And that's like I, that's a big part of young people's lives, and and not to not to try and make out like it wasn't part of our lives either. I mean, right. you know, we took silly photos of ourselves when we were young, and. I was a goth, so, you know, I am no stranger to pretense, being <laughs> pretentious. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's kind of strange. And, and I've seen a number of articles recently about how much stock people put in likes and comments and shares mm. of specifically Instagram posts. Right. Where there's a real, if you don't immediately comment about how beautiful someone looks in an Instagram post, that's like... An insult. It's almost like a, a canary in the coal mine thing of when you you do it automatically. So when you don't do it, that's a problem kind right, of thing, which right. is not not really the way I think about mm. comment boxes. Mm. So actually, interestingly, I saw another article recently, which I shall have to dig up and, and maybe put in the show notes about this. There's a phenomenon recently on Instagram called threads. Mm. Threads are not not a phenomenon that is unique to Instagram or anything like that, but uh, they're very popular, especially with teenage girls, mm. where somebody will make a, a thread, which is just a sequence of images with captions, right? And it's like a there's like a thread in Twitter, right? right like right. where you just reply to the previous one each time, so you can see all the images and the captions in order, and you can comment on them. I don't know if you comment on the thread as a whole or if you comment on the images individually or both, mm. but a, a trend in the last few years has been to make these threads of useful advice for teenagers right and mm -hmm. so these are these are the sorts of things that you can imagine teenagers would once have got from magazines or whatever but it's like how to deal with your zits or 
what it's like to have your first kiss or right. all these sorts of things, right? Mm. And But the thing I found quite interesting about this article is that for a lot of these girls that are reading them, this is not one of those articles that goes dark, by the way, and finds that there's like some problem in the algorithm that leads them to sort of suddenly be getting Nazi propaganda thrown in their face or anything. It's not <laughs> something like that. Like they, these threads are, at least the ones I talk about in this article, are genuinely sort of useful, wholesome pieces of information for teenage girls growing up, sort of trying to understand their new reality and so forth. Right. But... There were, there were some quotes from some girls of around sort of 12 or 13 in this article saying that I, they were quite revealing because they were saying they don't like searching in Google, partly because Google feels a bit formal and you get like serious articles about right. things. <laughs> and partly because Google is like chaotic, right? You're exposed to the entire internet and you don't really know which site to go to or who to trust, you know, it's, and it's, and whichever site you open, like you're going to be shown a different web design, which may be sort of easy and readable, or it may be like a complete mess full of adverts and difficult to get to your content. Like you don't know what you're going to get with Google. Mm. Whereas with Instagram, they follow specific people, like actual human people that they trust that have posted a lot of these threads and they've maybe one of their friends has shared one of the threads and then they look at this person's thread and then they look at some of the other threads that the same person has written and they decide, oh yeah, this person gives out useful information and so they trust them. Mm. So then they follow that person and then they get, you know, then that person releases more threads and they get exposed to, you know, the next, the next piece of interesting information. Right. And the thing that I found very interesting about that and the reason I wanted to talk about it here, because we talked previously about, I think on the last episode, about the way that I like Twitter, because I get to curate the humans that I follow. Right. And then they sort of direct me towards content I might be interested in, mm. as opposed to AI or uh, even RSS. These days, I think I use Twitter more than RSS to get it, mm. uh, information. And this is a, although, you know, it's Instagram, not Twitter, and the, the kind of content is different. This is a, a similar sort of thing where in this age of AI and search engines, like Google is another example, right? There's a lot of AI involved in taking your search term, understanding what it is you really wanted, and then pulling up the pages mm. to serve to you. But again, what these people are saying in this article, what these girls are saying, is that they don't really want that. They want to have chosen to follow a particular person mm. that they trust and they are interested in the opinions of mm. and then to be given sort of these sort of bite-sized... That's the other thing they said, which is a little bit negative, but like their attention span is not so good these days, the kids. So, <laughs> so they don't want to sit and read a whole article about whatever issue it is they're looking for. You know, they want a sequence of tweet-length sentences right. with pictures that they can follow, right? Right. But, that, you know, Instagram threads are giving them that quite effectively. Mm. And for a lot of them, I think this replaces what would have been magazine content before. Mm. So it's a very sort of interesting phenomenon and interesting to see how 
the kind of next generation who's grown up with not just the internet, but with social media right. as a presence throughout their entire life, essentially. Mm. It's kind of the way that social media is delivering information to them and the way that they are actually, I think, quite skillfully avoiding some of these problems that we've talked about a little bit in the past of sort of algorithms and AI sometimes leading you astray. Right. And the way that they've managed to avoid that is through a very human process of finding someone they trust. Right. Yeah, the the presence of social media, especially for the younger younger generation, as something that is a given and as something that everybody has and is sort of an integral part of, you know, growing up. And it's it's almost hard it's very important for us for people in our generation who obviously, you know, when we were that age, there there was no such thing as uh I mean, when I was when I was when I was a teenager, you know, the internet itself was something that you went to the library and, and you used, you right. know, you logged into a, a VT220 terminal and used links to look at, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> that's a text-based You were browser. a teenager a little bit before I was. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so basically, um, yeah, the, the one thing that I think is perhaps of a, maybe a little bit of concern, but then perhaps not, maybe that just the, the, this, the idea has changed somewhat is cultivating an online persona. Mm. So then coming back to St. Vincent's quote of sell your myth but never buy it. Right. Cultivating an online persona is actually part of finding yourself. So yes, it, like St. Vincent's quote, uh, sell your own myth but never buy it, That that is basically grounded in an assumption that you know yourself and... Now, in order to entertain people, you create another version of yourself and people enjoy that and idolize that. That is your myth, but you don't buy it yourself. You always remain one step removed from it and objective to the fact that that's not you. Mm. you know, that is a performance that you're putting on for people to enjoy and for your artistic objectives. That's not you. So you have you yourself already and then on top of that, you put on this artificial persona for people's enjoyment. So on the other hand, you know, when you were mentioning the couple um, uh, taking pictures of each other in the cafe to, to post mm. on Instagram or whatever, another example is uh, the weather's been glorious in, in Stockholm the, la- uh, the last few um, weeks. And uh, when I was walking through the city the other day, there was a couple doing that thing where the guy was holding his phone in one hand, stretched out, his arm in front of the phone into the camera right. view right. and holding his girlfriend's hand mm. as she was looking away from the camera. So, you know, you will have seen uh, these... Uh, there was one photographer that that uh, kind of went viral for doing this uh, several years ago where he, he went to various countries in the world with his girlfriend mm. and every picture was his girlfriend walking into a very photographic scene and his hand is holding hers in the foreground of the of the frame as if she's pulling him into the scene. Hmm. So okay. this this couple were doing this couple were doing that. Uh, so you you know he was holding sort of it looked very awkward looking at it. <laughs> but it's like a selfie but with her walking away rather yeah. than both looking at it. Yeah, them. and the idea right. that the picture look makes it look like she's pulling you into the scene, you see. Oh, I so see. Okay. yeah, basically um watching them do that as well. You know, it's it's kind of like a creating that moment is part of that couple or that guy formulating the sort of online persona for the entertainment of his 
followers. Mm. But again, you know, I can see how for perhaps uh, many people in the generation that grew up with things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat, um, you can imagine how the way that people view you online becomes an integral part of actually your own process for discovering yourself. And that's... That again, right, is... and and also the the thing you just described, you described it very much in a he's doing this for his online presence. But I mean, it, they she might be just as interested in this this style of pho- photography, right? This is part of the way that the this couple express their relationship mm. and their being together. And you know, I mean, people have taken photos of themselves together on sunny days for a long time, right? Mm. <laughs> True. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, so, I mean, that example was more in key with, you know, your example of the couple in the cafe taking pictures of each other. Right, drinking right. The, and there the is coffee. a sort of cliche kind of the, a presentational feel to it, right? It feels less like a, we're making this memory for ourselves to put in our own photo album. Like, you know they are going to be uploading this to Instagram or exactly. Facebook. Or but you see, that's part of the persona that they are creating, that, you know, we right. are, we're traveling and we're doing these cool travel things. Right. Or right. we're in this trendy cafe drinking out of this massive bowl-shaped cup of coffee, you know. It, it's just part of the, the image that they uh, – it is a little bit different for, from like a couple taking a photo of themselves on a, on a holiday mm. because in that situation, it's essentially for them and their own – well, generally speaking, right. their, their own memoirs you know, or, or showing relatives or friends or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'm they, not sure that distinction exists so much now. Like right. I, think, I think that these things are as much for them – as for public consumption. I don't think they're exclusively meant for public consumption either. Mm. I think they're a part of the way that people are enjoying the moment. Mm. Right, right. I mean, it's, it's, um, it is a curious thing because, you know, when I use Twitter and when I write on Twitter, I, uh, being somebody who, uh, I guess, you know, uh, I grew, grew up, found, found myself, so to speak, without such tools or without anybody else watching, mm. you know, when I'm using Twitter, that there is no persona, that that is just me typing something into Twitter. Perhaps it might be reading a little bit too much into, you know, the, the young people's objectives when using, using social media. But I think that it is very, very fascinating how much this has changed and how much of the central role, the way that other people view you online is now playing with the, with the formulation of young people's personas and, and personalities. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting, but at the same time, I don't want to overplay it because right. you and I are very different and we, had, we grew up very differently as well. But I feel like, sure, I didn't have Twitter or Facebook and I didn't even get MySpace until I was a little older. But I definitely devoted a lot of thought and attention and interest into developing my own persona when I was a teenager. Mm. And I, there was definitely a lot of situations, real life situations, as well as online on the various websites that I had, where I was definitely establishing and creating a persona as a way to discover myself and as a way to explore my own personality. Mm. And I think that's still true today. I mean, you say that when you tweet, it's just you. That may be so, but 
I know that for my part, I am selective about what I tweet and I tweet with a certain voice, right? Mm. And it's not, it's not a persona so much. It's not a lie, but I'm not stupid enough to post every little thought I have onto Twitter. Mm. And at the same time, I am presenting myself in, in a way that I want to be seen mm. right i think that's a that's a fairly normal human thing to do even without the internet i think for sort of the whole of human history that is this is what we've done right mm. it 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 just seems a bit starker and a bit more and harder frankly now because before you only had a, a smaller pool of people to sort of present yourself to and it was much easier to present yourself one way at school and another way at home and another way when you're sort of out at a gig or something, right? Mm. Like I had three different personas for those three different things when I was growing up. Mm. But now you're in front of everyone all the time. And so it's actually, it's actually harder to develop these distinct personas. You, have, you almost have to have one that you use everywhere. Yeah, it's... Um, in a way. Yeah, in Australia, especially when I grew up, perhaps it could be just, you know, the way that my parents raised my brother and myself, but being pretentious was something that was very, very bad. You know, it's very, very important to always be the right. same person in all situations. And right. I remember having a conversation about this uh, with a very, very close American friend who said that he, the way that he was brought up is that, you know, you have your, have, you have your work persona and you have your non-work persona. And he said that he would be really, really uncomfortable with his work colleagues knowing the kind of person he is outside of work. Right. And by the same token, for somebody like me, who, you know, I know his off-work persona, he said that he would be a bit embarrassed by me seeing him in the office the way he is in his work persona because it's, it's different. Right. And in his case, you know, he said that there are various situations, and I can also understand and imagine that there are various situations with his line of work where it's actually useful to be slightly divorced from your actual self when you're at work. Right. So from at least the way that I was brought up, that is very bad. And, you know, we had a really, really interesting conversation discussing uh, the sort of relative merits of, of both philosophies. You know, the way that I was brought up is that you just always have to be the same person regardless of what you're doing or where you are or who you're with. But I see your point very clearly that, yeah, the, the thing online, you know, if, if you are assuming a certain kind of voice in order to project yourself online, it is definitely harder because, you know, if you walk into a room, for example, a business networking event, you know, the way that you present yourself in that kind of situation, mm. you get immediate feedback from, from whether or not what you're doing is effective or not. Mm. You know, effective as in, you know, whether or not it's appropriate or, or whether or not it's, it's, it's helpful for you. Right. You know, you, you know if, if people just don't want to talk to you or they, they look disinterested when they're talking to you or they, you know, uh, then you know that this whatever you're projecting is, is not, not very appropriate or effective in that situation. Mm. Whereas online, with something like Twitter or Facebook, you know, you say something and this goes back again to what you were saying earlier about whether or not you get likes for your post on Instagram immediately or not. Right. Whether or not people respond at all. And it's one, one very, very big difference for me from, from Facebook versus Twitter is that when I write something on Twitter, 
yeah, maybe I'll get, you know, one or two likes. Mm. But other than that, this is like total silence. And it's basically like <laughs> standing with a megaphone, you know, broadcasting into an empty theater. Whereas with Facebook, you know, if you write something, you'll get your aunt or your old primary school friend or your previous colleague or, you know, all of these people just sort of pressing a like button. Mm. And, and the feeling is very, very different. You know, the feeling of, I guess, validation is very, very different in that situation. It could just be... The specific people that I follow on Twitter aren't the, the types. This does sound like a sort of a thing that would vary with the people in the, a, a different more than a difference between Twitter and Facebook. It sounds like the difference between the people you have on your Twitter and the people you have on your Facebook. Absolutely. You know, on your Facebook, you've got much more sort of family and people who feel like you know they know you personally and and they want to sort of yeah absolutely send you that thing. And on Twitter, it's much more sort of. I read all your tweets. I like them. I mean, I don't click like on them, but I I like them. Yeah, that is, is it, yeah, it's a, it is absolutely a difference. Uh, not a difference between Twitter and Facebook, but it is absolutely a difference between you know who I follow because, like I've mentioned before, or who follows you? Yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, because like I mentioned before, I um I only follow, no, I only connect with people who I've met personally, right? Uh, and so generally, I don't have too many follows from people that I haven't met because i'm not mm. i mean a few but i'm, I'm not uh, you know so broadly spread across the internet that people know me even though they haven't met me right but uh it, yeah it is it is um that the sense of validation from that persona or i guess if you want to call it a persona or i guess in my case just basically myself that i'm projecting out there is very different and i can definitely see how the experience of trying to find yourself and trying to find who you are and the, the person that you are underneath various personas that you might have for different situations in the past where you're doing that right in front of other people all the time mm. versus now where you're doing that in front of probably a larger group of people but depending on the people that you are connected with, you may or may not get any validation at all for what you're doing mm. or you may get an excessive amount of validation for what you're doing you know, you can definitely see uh, how that's going to be a very, very different experience in, in finding yourself. Yeah. Sell your own myth, but never buy it. I think that's a great quote. That is. Perhaps not relevant to those of us who aren't artistic performers, but... Uh, oh, well, I don't know. I think, I think it is. I mean, like I say, I think the majority of people do have s some sort of separate side to their personality. And especially here... You know, that's another thing here in Silicon Valley. A lot of people are forming startups and meeting VCs and pushing their idea. And again, I think there's a real sort of, there's a front that is put on, put on when you do that. Mm. And I think the same quote could apply there, where mm. it's like, you know, it doesn't necessarily even just have to apply to you, but like your product as well, right? right like right. you're selling the vision of your product, but you shouldn't believe the thing you sell. You should believe the thing that you know to be true. Right. Right? Um, which sounds terrible because it sounds like I'm saying you should sell something that's a lie, which is not what I'm saying. But you're usually selling the thing that is two or three versions ahead of the thing you have made right now. Right? Right. And you should know and be aware of every difference between the thing that you're saying to someone and the thing that is currently the case. And like, know, A, that it's possible, therefore you're not selling a lie, you're just selling potential. Mm. 
and B, know what you need in order to make it possible, mm. right? And so I think there's a, there's an element to which this can be applied in, in business and in technology and things like that, as well as performance. Mm. Perhaps. I mean, as you said there, if you rephrase it, sell your own myth, but never buy it. If you rephrase that, it can be rephrased as you just said just now, basically sell a lie. So in the case of performance and a performer, yes, you know, it, it makes sense. Sell this image of yourself, which is artificial, and you, you should know that it is artificial and you should never believe that that is actually you. Mm. Hence, sell the myth, but don't buy it. In the case of, you know, uh, uh, yeah, perhaps in the case of pitching something, absolutely, just as you described just now, in the case of selling something, perhaps not. Because, you know, if, right. at, at least for my, myself, when I'm doing business presentations, I think it's absolutely critical that I believe in everything that I'm saying. <laughs> you know, that, yeah, I think, I think I'm using a very broad definition of the word sell here. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> 